I mean, so you did rubber hand illusions and that kind of stuff in Nocturne, right? Um, but yeah, or like, sort of. so how did you get into that? Because it's it seems to me like it's a somewhat smaller area. Yeah, so I guess um, I came to the end of my undergraduate degree, and I like I, I, during my degree, I always wanted to do. I was thinking I'd go into kind of clinical, as lots of psychology students do. And then I remember in the final year of my course, I did um, a module which is on um, neuropsycho- neuropsychology. And I was just like, oh, I just want to keep learning about it. How do I do this? What kind of job? So I went to see um, uh, one of my lecturers and I said, you know, I, I, well, I don't know what to do, but I want to keep learning about this. What are my next steps? Like a, I could do a master's. Um, and uh, and they suggested, well, why don't you apply for a PhD? You never know. You could get on. So I looked um, looked up different. At the time, I was interested in kind of stroke and that kind of thing. So And then I found, um, well, actually, it was uh, Steve Jackson rather than Roger Newport, who was my second supervisor at Nottingham. Roger Newport was my first supervisor in the end. And uh, their research seemed interesting. Um, and so I um, applied for a PhD and I got on. Um, and then I guess we were. T- Roger was interested in. They were they were looking more at motor, motor control. So he was interested in motor control. That's what he did for his PhD and was doing on. And then he was interested in uh, when I was starting a project to do with awareness of action. So awareness of your body and like that whole kind of self. Um, consciousness and stuff really interested me so that's kind of where we started and so awareness of action and then we kind of at the, at the same sort of time um, there were people like Patrick Haggard uh, as well as Steve Jackson who's um, the professor in in that, that lab um, we had got funding from uh, EPS the Experimental Psychology Society to run a series of um, sort of small meetings on with a theme of body representation and so I from right from the beginning of my PhD I went along to these they were really small at the time they were like so what year was this because I mean the rubber hand illusion is 1998 right so it's, yeah yeah it can't it's, have been that much off or I mean somewhat <laughs> 2004 <laughs> I started my PhD so um it you know not that much after so it was a developing field basically it wasn't now it's quite popular although you, exactly that's what i mean like it's, yeah but yeah. At, at the time it wasn't and these meetings these body representation meetings had like you know 15 to 30 people in them like quite small and i, I do remember um uh henrik erson um as a postdoc at one of these meetings so you know um uh i didn't speak to him then or anything but you know eventually i went on to work with him uh, but um, see, there were really tiny little meetings, and then they just grew and grew throughout the course of my PhD. So I think I, I, I it's just timing, I guess. So um, I just joined this lab uh, just as this uh, that was interested in this area, just as it was kind of blossoming, and that's how I learned about the rubber hand illusion and stuff. I have to admit that when I first learned about the rubber hand illusion before I ever experienced it myself. I was a bit sceptical of this, like, (laughs) illusion, making you feel like your hand's your own. But then after I experienced the illusion, then I was convinced because I have a really strong illusion. I was like, oh, my gosh, it does actually really work. It does actually really feel like it's my hand. So, um, yeah, that's Uh, my... Could you briefly explain what the rubber hand illusion is? Oh, yes, of course. Um, So it is an illusion where you... um, 
you get people to feel like a fake hand is their own. And you do this by you use a fake hand uh, or a rubber hand, hence the name rubber hand illusion, and you place it on the, the sort of the table in front of a participant. Um, so it sort of looks like it's coming from their own body. And then you normally use something like a bit like a, like a hairdresser's cape that kind of hides the fact that, you know, that it's a, a you know, has a, a, the hand finishes at the wrist sort of thing. So it hides the, the wrist of the fake hand and also your forearm. And then you, the participant's forearm is put somewhere else, either sort of next to it and, and hidden with a screen or perhaps underneath it. Often you can use that. Um, and so, so under the table or underneath a platform on which the rubber hand is on. So basically you can't see, you can't see your own hand. You can only see this fake rubber hand as if it's coming out of your body. And then what happens is the experimenter normally uses brushes to um, like brush or in some way touch the, the, your real hand and the fake hand at exactly the same time and exactly the same place. And then because what you see um, a hand being brushed matches what you feel, your hand being brushed. Your brain sort of interprets that as the fake hand is your hand. So it kind of recalibrates the felt position of your hand, which we call proprioception, um, in line with that of the rubber hand. So it feels like your hand has moved to the position of the, the, the fake hand and it feels like the rubber hand is your hand. But where if you did the, the, the stroking at, at different times, so it wasn't exactly the same time and exactly the same place, so it's asynchronous, uh, then you don't get the illusion to the same extent. Is that clear? <laughs> I think so. I mean, okay. it's always hard, you know, same yeah. for me. Like, I don't know it as well as you, but I've done it a few times. And yeah. I think that's clear. Uh, but actually, one question is the... So I've only done it or had it done on me when the hand was next to my hand. I've never done the underneath or something like that. Mm -hmm. Is there... Do they work differently well? Or what's the... I Like, why would you do one or the other? So I think think well often it's uh i don't know a, a case of logistics you know you might have like in the scanner or something if you're in the brain scanner it's much easier you don't have the the lateral space to have the hand next to it so you put the hand underneath i mean and i i'm not sure if there's been a study i can't think off the top of my head which directly compares the two but in my experience the one where it's actually underneath is much stronger but the original design was to the side but if you if you imagine if you're thinking about the felt position of the hand it's when you've got it um one above the other it's kind of they're overlaid even though there is obviously this this height difference so i think that's why it's because it seems to be more and also the the um you know the how your fore the, the the posture of the, the shoulder and stuff is, is more in line with that position of the hand so mike so I, I can't think of a paper that's directly looked at this, but my experience is that one is stronger. So it's also just takes up less space. So um, some of the studies I've been doing over recent years are, uh, I've been doing sort of in, in public engagement events, like science festivals and stuff with kids. And it's just easier to have a little platform. It's just logistically easier, I think, to use the the, the one above the other method. But the traditional, that Botvinnik and Cohen used the, the first ones were done in that way. So that's that's probably why. So... So you said you had a really strong illusion. And yeah. I think maybe one reason why I'm, I mean, I find the research really interesting, but maybe one reason why I'm not that much into it is because I get a very weak illusion after mm -hmm. lots of effort. Okay. Uh, so is the, if I remember correctly, when I was at Karolinska, I think, I think I asked this question and if I remember correctly, 
there wasn't really a good explanation for why it works for some people, not for others. Is that correct? Or yeah, so we don't we don't really know exactly what we do know. There is a massive variation in like most people get an illusion to some degree. Some people get no illusion, and and again, it's like then they just think I'm a crazy lady stroking their hands, right? <laughs> and but it's fine. I've I've literally given like thousands of these illusions, so. Um, I'm 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 happy with all different kinds of responses, um, but I think it depends on the. So it might be the way. There's several theories about why the illusions work and how they work, and so it might be the way that your brain uh, kind of weights different information. So perhaps for some reason you weight this kind of the felt position of the limb, what we call proprioception stronger relative i mean we're all visually dominant but you might relatively speaking to other people uh, kind of weight that information is a bit stronger also i think there's with recent theories of this kind of weighting of different information is you might experience the illusion if we keep giving you enough information to suggest the hand is your hand so um um where from nottingham when i was in nottingham we didn't use the rubber hand illusion in the traditional way that I've described. Instead, we had something called the Mirage system, which created similar illusions, but using sort of um, uh, video, real-time video feedback of your actual hand. So it was a much more kind of immersive and realistic. And that we found it was had much more um, higher rates of people experiencing strong illusions because it was actually your hand, but then we could we did really cool things like stretching fingers and giving and moving your hand into different places. And these were and making hands disappear or feel like they disappear. So um, maybe you would have an, a, a stronger illusion in that context. But for me, it doesn't really matter. It can be like, a, a, like I've done, and this is uh, from a non-published study, but I've done uh, illusions using a monkey hand and I, I get the illusion with the monkey hand. I don't know what it says about me, but... <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, didn't, if I'm very correctly, so I think it, isn't it that basically, like, for example, like skin color or something makes no difference usually? Uh, I think, like, if it's, it has to look like it has to have fingers basically or something like that, right? Like a block of wood doesn't do it. Yeah, that's but true. But then it has to, like, have, I don't know, like, yeah, five fingers or something like that. Yeah. Or... So, well, there's individual differences across this. Um, so you can get so there's studies to show that you can get illusions um, you can get a significant effect of the illusion uh, when the skin colour is not your own skin colour but to say it doesn't make any difference I think is not accurate so um, so we've talked so far when I've described the rubber hand illusion I've talked about the synchrony of touch being really important but there's obviously another aspect and that is your high level knowledge of of what your body looks like and so that's or um i think uh, it's been termed like your body's structural description or something like that and so that these kind of high level constraints have an impact on the strength of the illusion so whereas you can still get illusions you can still get a significant effect with a different color skin color hand but it's if you look at the data, it tends to be not quite as strong when it doesn't match your own body. Uh, I mean, I've done, there's been some really interesting um, illusions which have tried to explore, and actually I'm writing a paper at the moment using the monkey hand illusion, trying to explore the, the role of these uh, top-down um, constraints, these kind of um, uh, what you know of what your body should look like, um, limitations on the illusion. So, um, and I've looked at it in children, 
Um, this is it's an unpublished study yet, but uh, and I'm in the process of writing it up. But we found that that this kind of develops during adulthood, but also in adults with the monkey illusion that it depend. It's kind of related to their fantasy proneness, so how much they are willing to sort of um, suspend disbelief in general. So uh, if that makes sense, so this this is kind of these high level constraints. But you can give invisible hand illusions. So that you, you may have experienced that in in Henrik's lab, where they just there was no fake hand; they just stroked empty space, and you feel like you've got an invisible hand. Yeah, I think Arvid might have tried that. I don't know. I think I think we took like two minutes to get the normal rubber hand to work. Oh, yeah. Okay. I think that we basically said like, yeah, invisible one is going to be a bit hard now. <laughs> yeah, well, whereas I had spent ages kind of um, in in heated discussions in our lab meetings about like, what what does it mean? How can you have this invisible hand illusion? How does it work? It doesn't really make sense what you're embodying. And then uh, then they were like, okay, you have a go. And I was like, within a couple of seconds, like, oh. It really works. It really works. So, so. so invisible hand works, that means like you just don't have the rubber hand, right? You just pretend. Yeah. You feel like your hand is sort or... of, yeah, you sort of stroke an empty space and it feels like you're, um, you're, you, you own an invisible hand. So your hand is there, but you can't see it, basically. And it feels like your hand's gone invisible. It's kind of a really weird experience. So, and I've done, I've done, I published a study well, last year where we did a version of that where I was able to do invisible finger stretching. So we would, that our tactile feedback instead of like kind of the brushing, the brush strokes is we, we stroked um, along the finger and then gradually st- your sort of invisible finger got longer and longer, if that made sense. Oh, you mean like the, 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 the... The stroke you saw kind of yes got it stretched longer and longer whilst we're keeping kind of the same uh the same length on your finger and people felt like they were getting these long invisible fingers uh the strength of the illusion isn't as strong obviously as if if you had real visual feedback but we were able to elicit that kind of uh, that feeling of of long invisible fingers which is exciting so and um, interesting it's such a bizarre research area. <laughs> like uh, even within like psychology or doing experiments or something, I give people make a decision between like two things or something. <laughs> and then you have these things where you give, like that's that's the one thing that I found so cool in, in when I was in Stockholm is that this was pretty much the only time that consistently participants said it was an interesting experiment to take part in. I mean, here you occasionally have someone who said, oh, that was really cool. And you go like, was it? <laughs> like, <laughs> really? That was interesting? I mean, fair enough. But um, it's, yeah, it, with the, I mean, we did the full body illusion, but there it was fairly common that people would say like, that was actually really interesting. Yeah, it's nice because um, what's really nice in science to try and get people to engage in it. And that's why this field is really good for that because people can take part like that's why I do a lot I do a lot of these public engagement events and so you get people to take part and then they get interested in why it works and how it works Uh, although a lot of people sort of say oh yeah but what's the point and then you're like "Uh aha and then you can give them some the proper science behind it and they're like oh yeah so it's not only fun but it's also important so um yeah best of both worlds exactly I think so but yeah sometimes they think that I'm a bit like you know I've have like fake you know my lab has got open the cupboard in my lab and there's a mannequin there and stuff and <laughs> yeah. uh pe- so people do think i'm a bit weird sometimes it's like oh yeah she's the lady with all the hands so um uh, but you know yeah it's especially weird when i guess te- 
I think someone said that in Henrik's lab that they were going through Stockholm with like a rubber hand in their bag or something and you do sometimes get slightly weird looks where yeah. there's like a finger coming out of your bag or something. Yeah, what have you got there? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, so you said like you kind of accidentally almost got into the field. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you end up then in Henrik's lab in Stockholm? I guess you said you met him earlier, but didn't talk to him. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not in avoiding him, but just didn't talk to him. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I'd met, I met him when he was a postdoc, but then I, I met him later as well, but I didn't really speak to him very much. I, I'm, I'm quite shy, especially when I was a PhD student. I was very shy about... Um, so I wasn't very good at that. But yeah, so during the course of my PhD, and then I stayed on in the same lab and did uh, two short postdocs. They were about a year. And then um, I was looking for a job and um, uh, someone sent me an advert for a job in Henrik's lab. And obviously Henrik at that point was um, uh, blossomed into a a very well respected researcher in our field, like um, with some excellent publications and some really nice big grants. Um, So I was like, oh, I'd like to try and work with him. So I I applied and um, I got invited for interview. And uh, and when I turned up, he recognised me, even though he hadn't. And was like, oh yeah, so we do know each other. We've seen each other at conferences, um, and that's it. Went from there, really. I mean, um, Henrik has such a great reputation. So obviously, when the opportunity came to work with him, I was very keen uh, to to take that. And I wanted to learn fMRI, and I hadn't been able to do that during my PhD. So it was a good opportunity as a postdoc to learn fMRI. Was that a problem that you had? Had you done like some sort of neuroimaging before, or was it really? Um, I'm always curious, like when I mean, I'm still in the middle of my PhD, but I'm always curious, like how easy it is to get a postdoc if you don't have the tools that you want to use later on. I mean, to some extent, you have to learn new stuff, but you know, yeah. So, actually, it probably is really difficult. Um, that's it's good to learn these skills in your PhD if you can, because it is really difficult to get a postdoc, which is on neuroimaging um, without that neuroimaging experience. Uh, the benefit with um, Henrik's lab is that he doesn't just do neuroimaging. So he does behavioral. So he has met plenty of um, people who work for him who don't really do uh, neuroimaging, but just focus on that behavior work. Um, so it's this, it's not just a neuroscientist or a psychologist, but bringing those two together, which I think is really important to have the skills in both because you get psychologists that maybe don't do so good neuroscience and neuroscience that don't necessarily do so good. That sounds bad psychology, but you know what I mean? It's kind of nice to, yep. to have the expertise in both and try to join that. I, I don't necessarily class myself as, as that. I don't think I'm an expert in neuroimaging, but at least I kind of know what I'm doing a bit now. <laughs> so uh, that helps. That's good. Um, so yeah, it was a rare opportunity as a postdoc to be able to learn to learn that and also in in one of the top labs in my field it was a it was a a, I was really lucky to get that position so it was good and Stockholm lovely lovely city enjoyed living there for four years it's also I I mean I really loved it but I was there for one summer when they had the nicest weather ever so I think I have a very biased view um, uh, but the winters are also nice with the snow and the I don't know I liked I liked the the way it changed over the years so I like that but the summers were always after a long cold winter the summers were always welcome even if it wasn't perfect weather so. yeah I mean that's what really surprised me when I 
came in like people seemed so happy to see the sun yeah. <laughs> like i mean it's not like i grew up in you know i still grew up in northern europe so it's i'm used to having like cold winters and everything but that still surprised me how much people just stood outside and just like oh yeah. sunshine yeah yeah i think others in the lab that came from like southern europe or um you know well you know somewhere in the states that's really sunny struggled a lot more with the uh with the climate in stockholm but i i i was fine i was fine with it obviously it's colder and and darker than the uk but i didn't notice that much difference to be honest so that was fine actually the thing i probably wanted to talk most about i guess is your work on uh, i guess for using full body illusions to study eating disorders and what do you call it? Body satisfaction yeah. or uh, these kind of things? Um, is is that also is that what you're kind of focusing on right now? Or um, I've developed a bit from there, so I still we still I still dabble a bit. I guess the problem is it's um, what I would like to do is work more with eating disorder patients, but I found there's you know it's difficult to um, to engage with those kind of populations. I think particularly in the UK when I've talked to different researchers in different places. So, and I guess when you think about it, so some of my studies, what we did is the full body illusion. It's basically like the rubber hand illusion, but for the full body. So you wear a virtual reality headset and you look down as if looking at your own body. But instead of seeing yourself, uh, you see um, images from um, some a camera of another person's body or a mannequin body from this first person perspective. So if in the place of your own body, you see this different body. And then again, this, um, this touching at the same, at the same time helps strengthen that illusion. Um, and what I've done before is give people ownership over fatter bodies and slimmer bodies. And I suppose, you know, no one's going to let me into a, an eating disorder clinic and just, give these eating sort of patients ownership over obese bodies because that's ethically could be quite challenging but um, uh, why exactly well there i mean it's a transient experience but um so it doesn't last very long but it could be that it might cause anxiety if they look down and see their body as obese um right like thinking they should get even slimmer or yeah exactly or they might find it emotionally difficult um so we don't really know because no one's let me do it yet so um uh but yeah what what i found when i've looked in uh the healthy population is that when you give uh women ownership over an obese body um actually with men as we found out as well uh, then people felt worse about themselves because they kind of owned that body and they felt fatter and they, and they felt worse about themselves, like uh, lower uh, body satisfaction. And this was also related to when we can measure sort of individual differences on the sort of um, eating disorder, psychopathology, one might call it, or just sort of um, how their negative feelings towards themselves and, and eating behaviours anyway, that's sort of related to... So the worse, the lower body satisfaction they have in the first place meant the stronger effect they had when they owned this obese body the worse that the, the more negative they felt after owning that obese body. Did that make sense? So, um, yeah, so that's what we found that we can change, change their emotional experience by changing how they perceive, uh, perceive their body, their body shape and size basically. And when we did that, we did that in the, um, brain scanner and, uh, we found that 
that areas of the brain that are linked to this um, this perceptual experience of the body. So, you know, the experience of size and shape of your own body um, were actually directly linked or communicating with these more emotional regions of the, the body. So it seems to be there's a, like a direct relationship in the brain between the perception and the emotion, which I think is quite interesting, um, especially when there are theories around eating disorders, which suggests that they have um, inaccurate perception of their body. And so this kind of inaccurate perception might be in some way partly driving their emotional response. But we don't really know that yet. It's just a theory. Yeah. And that's just is the main problem with with testing clinical populations than the the ethical part or uh, or is it also like organization or yeah or? well there's lots of logistical issues um yeah so there's ethics there's also sort of it's nice to get clinicians um engaged but the a lot of clinicians are so overworked that they don't really have time to engage in research even if they want to so um that's you know, there, there's lots of different issues, which meant that this area of research has been a bit slower than I would like. But um, yeah, so, but we, we've done quite, we've still looked um, at it within healthy populations and we can see, and then that tells us a little bit about risk factors for, for you know, developing eating disorders perhaps rather than looking at clinical populations. So I was able to do some rubber hand illusion stuff with, uh, with um, some eating disorder patients but that's as far as I've I've got and then that clinic was taken over by a different organization and I went on maternity leave so um I need to try and I've not long come back so I need to try and uh, uh re-engage with the clinicians there to see where we go from there so right mm. yeah that does always seem with clinical stuff that it just involves as we say yeah, just a lot of organizational time talking to people, getting them to trust you or wanting absolutely. to work with you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm also like um, doing a bit of work now with looking at uh, perception of the body during pregnancy. Because um, obviously, you're, you're, I mean, I hadn't thought about it before. And then I got pregnant. And I was like, oh, yeah, why didn't I look at pregnancy before? <laughs> and so again, I'm looking at the same sort of aspects. So this link between. Um, bodily changes and um, emotional aspects because again a lot of people you know uh, there's in the perinatal period so pregnancy and after birth there's a, like high instance of anxiety and depression in this group of people um, so it's interesting to look at how the body is related to that so um, in terms of you have lots of external changes but also internal changes what we'd call interception um, and hormonal changes so I'm kind of interested in that and I'm currently working with a, a midwife and I'm hoping that that will that will lead to something but again it's there's a, a lot of the work behind that is you know trying to um, engage with clinicians and make good links and get people enthusiastic about your work and and often they in academia, we're quite interested in underlying mechanisms and the basic science behind things. But obviously, in clinical practice, they're, they're mostly interested in the applied elements. So you, you really want to bring those things together. But it's quite um, it's quite a learning curve to see how to try and link the two to keep everyone happy. Because if I talk too much about the mechanisms, they're like over my head. What's the importance of that? Um, and you have to try and keep those engaged, and then also um, embrace the applied stuff. But that's not necessarily always as controlled as you want 
as you would do in the lab. So yeah, it's, it's quite a learning curve for me, but it's it's interesting. And I think it's really important because often, you know, with all the best intentions of researchers, the, the clinic and the, and the lab don't, don't often talk so well. So trying to do that, it's, it's a long process, but it's it's kind of the reasons that got me into research in the first place. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying I'm very I'm trying to I'm trying to continue that and to make those clinical links. So what is then the uh what what can these body illusions I mean you mentioned earlier for example in these public uh, not discourses but when people ask you like okay this is fun but what's the point of this so like for example for the clinical context what exactly I mean maybe not now but um in principle what can these kind of bodily illusions add uh, to help I guess clinicians do their work better. Yeah, so, well, I think some people have done work uh, with uh, full body illusions um, in eating disorder patients, and they have suggested that patients have, um, how they probably phrase it, it's a less stable body representation. So they tend to get uh, the illusions far stronger, and um, maybe it's less important of this synchrony of touch, which is, Obviously, as I've said before, it's really important for most people um, for the strength of the illusion that perhaps it's a little less important for them. So more readily adapt to these bodily changes. Um, and perhaps this instability might be part of the, the problem. But also there is a potential that um, if we could if we could find using some of the different illusions, if we could find a way to maybe um, make sort of update uh, their perceptual experience of the body of someone with eating disorders. Um, and there are, I have, you know, there, there are, I have hypotheses of how this could be done, then um, then perhaps we can make their, their, their more accurate, them realise their true shape and, and therefore make some progress into helping with therapy. I mean, that would be the, the ideal, to be able to use some sort of body illusions in therapy to, in order to kind of update body representations. So, so what accurate. do you mean by update exactly? Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking that, <laughs> as I was saying that, I was thinking, what does that mean? Uh, okay, so, <laughs> well, if you think of the traditional view um, of someone with anorexia, for example, and there's lots of pictures you might see in the media where they look in a mirror, but instead of seeing their true emaciated self, they'll, they see a, a fat or a normal sized body. Now, exactly whether this is how they experience it, it probably, probably some do, but maybe not all do. But, but this might be a feature or something similar to this be a feature of some presentations of, of eating disorders. Um, and exactly, we need to learn a little bit about why it's not accurate, why their representation of the self isn't accurate. But it could be, if you are able to um, uh, use these illusions to change their experience of themselves, even, you know, by, by giving them a different uh, size body and making them realise that actually, you know, when they look back at themselves, perhaps afterwards or, or during the illusion, that hang on, you know, that myself uh, my own body is is too skinny rather than this fat body that i've been looking at i mean one um nice some some examples in the literature have been just anecdotal actually where people will see a reflection of a body in a, a window or a mirror and they'll be like oh god she's skinny until they realize it's themselves 
and then they don't recognize that if that makes sense so perhaps if we can change the way that they view the body so like either they see their own body as if it's someone else and that kind of can make that connection somehow update that body representation or use these illusions to just change their perceptual experience that might just kind of make a, a shift in the brain to so they're more accurately recognize the true size of their own body i'm not saying that all people with eating disorders have this inaccurate representation of body size but but maybe for ones that do have this that might help to um, in some way through therapy I mean, in a way that is kind of that might be a goal in itself right finding out who do have that feature and who don't absolutely I, I mean that's that's the thing we need we need to learn about that's why the mechanisms are so important right so we need to to learn about ex what's you know who has this or um you know how many people kind of have this is it a true perceptual deficit and we need to we need to do a lot of this basic science before we can get to the clinical uh, more applied stuff and so i guess that's why it's kind of difficult going to a lot of clinicians when you're not immediately going to like oh let's try this it will help us a therapy but I guess that's that's an again an importance of doing a lot of the work looking at the variation within the healthy community because you have plenty of unfortunately you have plenty of people who aren't diagnosed with eating, eating disorders who are very dissatisfied with their bodies or have um, relatively high or you know um, sort of risk factors or similar sort of not quite clinical, but but high uh, negative feelings towards their body and or, or bad relationships with food. That perhaps we can use this population first to to show some patterns, and then move on to the clinic, which is kind of what I've been trying to do for the last number of years. Um, but yeah, so did that make any sense? I mean, yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting to me is I was just it seemed to me. I mean, you said earlier, for example, that the part of the reason why illusions may or may not work with certain people is because of maybe some top-down processes that you go like well, i know it's not my hand or whatever mm -hmm. uh, and then you also mentioned that um i mean anecdotally but that people with eating disorders might look at their own body not know it's their own mm -hmm. and then realize it so that seems to be again like a kind of top-down thing right when as soon as they know like oh that is my body then the um perception of that body changes, changes. completely i mean that those stuff, I mean, that that's a kind of more generic, I mean, it's not specific to body illusion. So mm. is that like maybe an approach that would be best suited to study first in, you know, stuff that doesn't uh, induce this kind of body illusion? So some sort of, um, you know, testing how much they weigh prior evidence or whatever, something like that. Um, yeah. Well... Yes, I, th I mean, I'm sh I think there's been, I think there are some studies with people with eating disorders in this kind of area. Uh, but it's, uh, I can't remember, I don't know if they've looked exactly at that question, but um, they there's definitely a number of different sort of uh, traits in terms of how they, they take on information, which is different, which is supposedly different in those with eating disorders compared to, with non um people without eating disorders but um yeah but i guess the thing is we don't it's it's not exactly clear um how significant a role because although i've said obviously it is important these top-down 
constraints on body representations. But um, we can still make people have invisible stretched fingers, which obviously they know is not real. So we can still have this effect. Um, and all the sort of evidence on body representations in those with eating disorders might suggest that they might even get this strong, more strongly. And actually, this again, this, um, this, this, this paper that I'm currently writing, where we did this monkey hand illusion. So we also did um, uh, a different, we got um, adults and children to have the illusion over small or large hands, um, because um, previous studies have shown that adults don't really um, have the same illusion, same strength illusion when the hand is really small, again, for this kind of top down constraint sort of um, hypothesis. So we we did this study um, where we got we took two measures. So we asked people, you know, does it feel like your hand? And we found that same that same difference between children and adults that uh, children would own um, either hand, like big hands or small hands, whereas adults had uh, much lesser ownership over the smaller hand compared to the larger hand. But when we did a different measure, so we just asked them, we showed them a series of different size holes and we were asking them to make judgments of whether they could fit their hand through. We found that both children and adults showed an effect of the illusion on, on that sort of, it's not quite an implicit task, but a, a more, a less direct task. So where they might be saying, oh no, that's not, you know, that's not my hand. But when they went to use that hand or make judgments, you know, indirectly assessing the size of the hand, it seemed that they had embodied it to some degree. So, oh, sorry, so the the adults had, not the children hadn't. No. Or everyone showed that effect. Everyone showed, yeah, everyone showed that effect. So, whereas um, the adults then were not showing the illusion over the small hand, but when you ask them to reach through something after they owned a small hand, they were saying they could fit the hand through smaller sizes of mm-hmm. of hole. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So it suggests that even though perhaps in a subjective, uh, I'm not getting the illusion kind of way that they, that, that has an effect. That maybe when you take other measures. Um, it, it does have an effect. And I guess we need to look at these in the different populations to see whether if those with eating disorders do the same kind of thing. Uh, so even if, I don't know, if, you know, there's, we don't really know enough about the role of that to really be definitively say if they weigh different types of information differently, they won't get the illusion. There is a hypothesis and maybe someone should study that, but um, that there are so many I don't have time to do every uh, to answer every question Everything. that I, that I that I find interesting. I, I unfortunately I'm probably spreading myself a bit thin across different topics as it is. So, um, but yeah, definitely it could be an interesting question. By the way, what what kind of monkey hand did you use? <laughs> it was because so I'm asking because I, I once met someone, and her hands ex- looked exactly like the hands of a gorilla. Like the, the, in terms of like length of, because I think if I remember correctly, gorillas have really short thumbs or something and really large palms. Uh-huh. And so then I looked up like different, I mean, not monkeys, but apes hands. Yeah. And for example, I think orangutans have hands that are very similar to humans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But others don't. So I'm just curious, <laughs> like how different is it from a human hand? Yeah, well, uh, it was, it, I, I have to, it wasn't maybe anatomically correct for the type of monkey it was, I think it was meant to be a chimp's hand, but it was basically the, mm-hmm. like a, it was a bit like a, a, a glove to fit uh, a human hand, but it was really hairy and had uh, like the knuckles and features of a, of a, it was of a monkey hand. It was kind of a bit of 
of a fun thing for the kids to do as well. But um, but we but we did find interesting effects as the children would report equivalent illusions, whereas the adults had a less illusion for the monkey hand. So, um, but yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, um, yeah, I have to admit it wasn't completely anatomically correct, but, um, okay, it was more, okay, so yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I guess that's why you called it monkey hand and not the bonobo hand, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, uh, yeah, I haven't, I had no monkeys were harmed in these experiments, I didn't cut off any monkeys, that's very hands. good. So, um, we should also say the rubber hand illusions are also not cut off of people, <laughs> yeah, exactly. no humans are harmed of that either, no, no. As far as I know, I don't know where you got them from. Yeah, That's what you always told me. Definitely, definitely not, not, not um, severed human hands. Although they probably would work. Uh, Although. <laughs> it would probably work with a severed human hand as, as well, but I'm not going to do Hypothetically. that. Hypothetically. I think ethics might be a bit of an issue with that, you know. But. Yeah, maybe even more than with the eating disorder. Yeah, people. exactly. What? Think, How are you going to get this? Uh, okay. <laughs> well, we have ways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, back to the. Or I'm curious about the pregnancy stuff. So is. So I don't know exactly what you did, but I could imagine, for example, they're showing a body that's growing larger on the belly would, for example, not be associated with negative feelings because it's seen as a positive sign of the child growing, right? Uh. Well. Or, yeah. Again, it's. Or not. <laughs> so we we didn't. Um. I I haven't done that. I I haven't done that study yet, but obviously. Obviously, that is um, one of the one of the things when I was doing the obese um, with a, a healthy population. When I gave them this uh, this obese uh, body, and and I saw the effect on body satisfaction. So one of my participants there um, said to me, "Oh, actually, I felt better when I had the fatter body because it reminded me when I was pregnant and I was so happy um, at that time." And at the time, I hadn't had kids. I'm like, yeah whatever how can you whatever. be happy about that <laughs> uh, and then um uh, but uh, so i think that it's a bit more complex it's a bit more complicated than that but um so uh, our, our one published study on this is actually just developing a scale to try and to try and look at this so it's a, it was a bit of a tangent from my normal experimental side but um we wanted to use a good scale in order to test you know in order to 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 look at these changes and how people felt about their body um so we had to start there um and i think what's interesting is that um obviously for some people in pregnancy as you're right just the the belly growing is a good thing because it's it's associated with a healthy baby um but obviously you're still this when you're getting bigger it's still a deviation from the social ideal of what what a woman should is an attractive woman looks like and unfortunately doesn't that change with you know like you go like well you're pregnant so therefore you know, yeah well or not yes and no not for everyone um okay so i think there's there's strong cultural aspects in this but also a big individual differences and also even even that it is even though it if it does change during pregnancy so um yeah so there's definitely some so there's a lot of qualitative studies in this area, um, and uh, some of them have talked about this change where, oh, yeah, I'm allowed to eat what I want. I can just be, I can have a big belly because I'm pregnant, and so that suspends everything during pregnancy. Whereas other people still really struggle; they're getting bigger, and they really struggle with that during pregnancy. So I think there is um, individual differences in how you um, 
adapt to this to the changes changing body during pregnancy but also even if you're happy to have this baby bump it's like that isn't the only physical change that you have during pregnancy right so that not everyone just puts weight on just where their bump is but they get there's lots of uh, to be honest that there's not one part of your body that probably doesn't get affected by pregnancy which a lot of people aren't expecting um, and so they struggle with that. And so there's still an ideal pregnant body. It might have, it just probably has this perfect little baby bump and slim everywhere else, right? So um, it's it's not it's not just the case of oh you can look how you like because you're pregnant and you're growing this person, which it should be because your body is doing this. You know, this it's an amazing thing, and it takes a lot of energy uh, to grow a child. It's, it's crazy. Um, uh, but but it isn't like that, unfortunately. So um, it's interesting for us to kind of explore that. And I guess what's important is um, to maybe identify perhaps women who struggle a bit more with, with the physical changes in pregnancy for whatever reason, whether it's because they're having more hard time with physical changes or because of their the beliefs beforehand which mean that they they don't accept them very well or as easily these people might be more at risk at developing postnatal depression or um, a prenatal depression or anxiety that kind of thing and also you have to think that although there's this sort of when you're pregnant then there might be some forgiveness as well you're getting your big belly as soon as you give birth what happens then? And I think that's where a lot of people have obviously this that the focus shifts away from oh this the pregnant woman needs to be looked after because she's got the baby. She's allowed to kind of eat what she wants and look how she wants. You give birth, suddenly the focus is all on the baby, not on the mother, incorrectly so. Um, and then you're not, where's your excuse for having a big belly anymore? Obviously, you still have an excuse, but um, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. not that you need an excuse, but you know what I mean? It's, it's like um, internally, I think there's a lot of problems. And just physically, like if you've had a long traumatic birth as well, you're you're not just overweight, but the, all the physical elements it can take you months or years. Some people have uh, bodily changes which never go away. So um, it's a huge physical undertaking just to create a human being. And um, so there's a lot to explore there. So yes, I think that it would be interesting to look at um the, the overall changes, as you've suggested, to see whether they actually get more positive feeling owning bigger bellies. But more importantly, I think it's to look at the individual differences for those um, to maybe identify people who are maybe at more risk at developing um, uh, mental health issues. And perhaps we can pick that up from um, their experience of their body or their physical changes during pregnancy, or at least part of that. I'm not saying it's the only the only cause but perhaps it, it can, can contribute in some way and so that's what i'm interested in rather than the overall effect but more nuanced uh, changes which might be um tell us something about uh, help us uh with maternal and infant health and well-being that kind of thing does that make sense yeah i mean <laughs> so i put I, I feel like i've just sort of you know um preached at you about uh, how difficult it is for a woman to <laughs> give birth or, and be pregnant and stuff. But, you know, you, you have, obviously, how would you know? Uh, you have no idea. But it's, um, yeah. That's true. And I had no idea before before it happened to me. And that's why, oh, I'm yeah. really interested in this field now. So I think, I think it's quite interesting 
did that then kind of shift your also academic interests a bit in that sense? Yeah. Or was it more kind of realizing that it was just something like, oh, it can be applied to that and it fits well? Yes. Uh, a, a bit of both so um yeah i think right now i'm really interested in um yeah uh, yeah the pregnancy side of things and i think it has academically shifted my interests a, a bit it's still within the same broad umbrella um and um i have phd students who are just a PhD student and also other students who all want to work with the eating disorder stuff and and perhaps if you're a you know, um, a 21-year-old, you're not so interested in pregnancy research. I mean, some are, but not everyone is. So I'm definitely still doing that. So it's not completely shifted my academic interests, but it certainly has made a bit of a change. Um, And and just applying things that that we know about or we've learned about just generally – um, body perception and stuff like that in in non-pregnant women it's made me think about how that might change uh, during pregnancy so uh one um quite the hot topic in body representation research at the moment is um interception so interception is sort of uh, body signals that come from inside the body so things like hunger um thirst um potentially pain uh, and stuff like that that come from does proprioception count as yeah so this is it is quite difficult the the the, the boundaries of what uh, counts as uh, interception and what doesn't but so some people might argue proprioception does another thing is affective touch so if you um, obviously this is an ex- when you touch someone that's very external but if you touch them at the right velocity, then that activates something called C-fibers um, under the skin and it feels pleasant. So this kind of this nice feeling touch opposed to if you stroke fast, which doesn't have the same internal effects. And so this is um, we've done a bit of work with effective touch. And some people would definitely say it's interception. Other people say not so sure. So there is a bit of a debate of exactly what counts as interception or not. But. Um, yeah, so in terms of pregnancy, obviously there's huge changes. So, or at least there's big changes certainly in the way that you might attend to these internal signals. So, you know, for for me, for example, um, I've always been someone who just maybe I don't have very good interceptive awareness, but I, I I don't always notice when I'm hungry. So I can be like at work and be like, oh, it's four o'clock and I haven't had lunch. How did that happen? When I became pregnant, that did not happen. I was eating lunch at 11 <laughs> and I was starving. You know, I got to points where I was just, I remember being like, I have to eat now, otherwise I'm going to faint. And I, I also know other people who have been like that. And, you know, my husband is like that. And obviously he's never had kids uh, himself. <laughs> yeah, that's what I say. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it, I think that's quite interesting that that's, or at least my attention to these signals might have changed. So it's probably I'm just, I got more hungry because my body is more busy using stuff up. But also because I'm aware that I'm growing a person inside me, I was like, oh, I better act on that rather than, no, it's just me, it's fine. You know, so it might change the way that you attend to it. But also there are significant changes in, you know, suddenly you have these little baby kicks from within you. And so they're sort of an 
internal bodily signal, which is weird because it's not actually you that's making that signal. It's a little baby kicking. Well, so there's so like a does, self. Is that interoception? Well, yeah. It's like, <laughs> I don't know. It's like a. But then I guess it's the 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 baby is making the kicks, but you're feeling it from within your own body, right? You're feeling it because they're they're kicking into your bladder or your, you know, elbowing you in the in the ribs or something like that. So. You, exactly it's a bit more complicated than that yeah but there are definitely signals coming from within the body which are brand new and so i think that all of this is so uh, I'm, annoyingly it's um with uh, the lack of face-to-face testing at the moment it's quite difficult to pursue this um at the, right. at the minute i have been dabbling with online experiments but they're harder obviously they're, they're not so easy to control and and stuff like that but um yeah it's just trying to trying to explore a little bit about um, how these interceptive changes might relate again to sort of um, maternal um, mental health. Because in in terms of eating disorders, like poor interceptive awareness has been linked with eating disorders. And that kind of makes sense intuitively that perhaps they, uh, someone with anorexia either doesn't recognise that they're hungry or ignores that they're hungry. So they have to dampen down these signals in some way. So it kind of makes sense that this... Um, there is some difference in interception uh, with these. And again, some, maybe someone with binge eating disorder, misinterpreting signals, thinking that they're hungry when they're not, that kind of thing. So so it does make sense. Um, so I'm kind of interested. I guess the, the benefit of working with pregnant samples is they're a little bit easier to work with than, than your um, eating disorder samples. But you can tackle some of the same questions and maybe something about what we learn in pregnancy can we can then we can then apply to other clinical groups so um yeah that's kind of what i'm interested in so they're kind of the same questions similar questions but but in different populations and you know yeah but it's kind of part of the same same sort of thing yeah it does sound as if you could do yeah, as you said many of the studies or address many of the topics that you want to do but without for example the ethical i would imagine at least fewer ethical constraints because they're not a clinical group yeah exactly um, they're healthy women they just happen to be pregnant exactly yeah. so um so it does make it a bit easier and then maybe if we can do some of the work in pregnancy and we learn about some of the i mean they're a really good group because they you know there are significant changes that probably occur during this time if we learn a bit about that then maybe we can build more of the um the the knowledge that we need in order to kind of convince clinicians working with eating disorders to uh, to to let me at their patients so you know that sounded wrong but you know what i mean so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, i think i know what you mean yeah, yeah so but you learn but they're interesting in their own right as well as i said because the the women um in pregnancy and just after pregnancy are, are much more prone than the general population for, for having depression and anxiety. So um, obviously there's a lot more going on, but, but in t- because I'm a, a body researcher, then I, I'm interested in that, in the, the body's contribution to, to these, if it has a contribution to these things, which because pregnancy is such a physical and birth is so physical, you would think that it would have some sort of potential contribution to, to what's going on. And it's kind of just so. Have you? I mean, it sounds to me that this is still early days. Mm-hmm. But have you looked at like how this changes over time? Like from you know, let's say you have people who, I mean, 
if it's with like a fertility clinic or something, you would have people who aren't pregnant yet but want to be. And then you could kind of look at how that is that something you want to do or Yeah, absolutely. So it would be I mean that obviously if you work with people with a fertility clinic, it might be people who are trying to conceive might be paying different attention to their body compared to the people who are before they're even trying to conceive. And then that's going to be difficult to get. It's, it's a long, it's, that's a, a much more long project to try and uh, get people before they've even thought about having kids and follow them the whole way. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the first next step would be to um, try to follow people from pregnancy to post postnatally. So we've done a bit of work in pregnancy. So as I said, we've got one published study and we've got other, um, other ones, uh, lots of other data from pregnant women. Um, and we've got some data from postnatal women, but they're different women. But the next step would be to try and follow people um, through pregnancy and and to postnatally and to see what happens. But then, yes, of course, it would be interesting to, to find people not pregnant and then follow them all the way through. So, um, yeah, that's, that's a goal, but it's a bit, I need, uh, I need some funding to be able to do that. So, um, uh, the, some of the data that I've got at the moment, hopefully will, will provide good pilot data for grant applications. So that's what I'm hoping. But it, it does sound to me like you have like a, uh, it seems to me like it's kind of a niche in the sense that it's potentially very interesting research that hasn't been done yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, There's, a lot of the work you know, you know what I mean like a, or not more like an area that hasn't yeah. been looked into yet almost absolutely well yeah so there's been there's some work on body satisfaction in pregnancy and um and that kind of thing but certainly pulling together perception and this emotional and also even the the body satisfaction in pregnancy is is a very relatively niche field in itself and um you know there's there's a lot of qualitative studies and not much um, strong experimental studies. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're, we're hoping to sort of fill that gap. So, um, and, 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 you know, it's quite an interesting bringing together different areas. And I think it's quite interesting. And as I said, I've, I've recently been, um, uh, I found a, a midwife, a trained midwife who's really keen on research. And so I'm hoping that we can, we can build, um, a good relationship um, to try and pursue this area more because I think it's got I think it's really interesting and as you said it's under it's an under-researched area I mean especially when you think of how many women get pregnant you know and the, and also the, there's a really quite a high proportion relatively of women who then develop mental health issues over this period and the knock-on effects of that aren't just damaging necessarily to the mother but also to the baby's development so it's actually a really important uh, field relative to its general lack of research in that area compared to other areas so i think it's uh it's important i'm probably becoming more feminist uh in my in my time uh as well just in terms of uh interested in you know in in terms of like i guess women in science and and when you look at many of these uh journals which are tailored towards things like midwifery or, or women's health the impact factors are are really low compared to some of others and you just think oh, that's 
Anyway, I won't preach to you about yeah, that, yeah. but um, but this is how that, that was actually one thought I did have at some point when I went. I think when you mentioned funding, mm. so like, oh, this might be the kind of area where it's harder to get funding, um, because of these kind of factors. Yeah, well, I think one of the one of the problems that I've so one of my main aims in research is to try and link the clinic with the lab right and but that's probably one of the hard one of the things which makes it more hard for funding if that makes sense so i think i mentioned it before that there's probably some slightly different emphasis depending off your clinical applied research compared to more basic science research and because my research often seems to kind of fall in between the two so you know some research funders will be like oh that's too applied for us whereas the applied, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah applied yeah. funders me like, oh, that's too basic science for us. Um, so I need to. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a learning curve for me to to work out how to pitch, and you know. So perhaps if I'm applying to a more applied funder, I have to kind of lean towards that in the main aims, but then obviously try to do all the basic science part as part of the studies, but perhaps less focus on them in the application. Talking about bureaucracy, you know, uh, of that element now. So, but it's it's it is yeah. I think that is a challenge um, in that way. Uh, but hopefully, you know, hopefully it won't be too hard. I'm hoping. So now I'm back from maternity leave. I'm uh, up to grant writing. Um, I'm starting to to be working on grants again. So I'm hoping that um, it won't be that bad. I mean, obviously, applying for funding is hard anyway. But um, you know. It's a bit of a lottery anyway, but... Then again, it's also novel, so... Yeah, I'm hoping so. I'm hoping that will be the nice selling factor. So, but um, we will see, time will tell. Actually, one thing I wanted to ask was you said online studies. Uh, I'm just curious, how do you do... I'm assuming you're not doing body illusions online. No. Uh, So what kind of stuff can you do online for your line of research? Yeah, well, there's... I've just, just the one pilot and i've just got pilot data for it so i'm not sure when you're gonna broadcast this so when everyone copying me but uh no um no i mean there there's a there's a task what's the acronym stand for um yes that basically there's a task called um mist which is um i can't remember what it's what it's actually some mindful interest it's about interceptive awareness right and it's a bit of a weird task and probably one that I wouldn't have jumped to use first if it wasn't one that I thought hang on this might be something that I can I can uh, apply to an online study so it's um where you basically have um people uh you ask people to attend to different parts of their body for a couple of minutes and then during that time, you're sort of, you know, mindfulness. I don't know if you've ever done yoga or mindfulness. And they're like, oh, now put your attention to your back. And then there's like, and then you think about your back and you're meant to be sort of in the zone. And then what happens in this time is there's some like little three beeps or whatever. And when you hear the beep, if you are, if your mind has wandered, if you've sort of like started thinking about a cup of tea or something like that, then you have to respond uh whereas if you are still concentrating then you don't press a button right and then but i've also had to adapt it a little bit for a slightly different measure too um just to find out how 
easy they find it to maintain their attention towards different parts of the body. And so this is meant to be some sort of interception, sort of how, sort of maybe more how avoidance or something or lack of avoidance of, of attending to different parts of the body, right? So this is the task that I've that I've tried, uh, I've adapted to online. And actually, I've got some really interesting, it seems to have worked. So um, I, I haven't got a massive sample because it's only a pilot so a pilot study to see if it's even feasible. Um, and but it's uh, so I got people to also take um, a questionnaire, which is meant to tap into interception. And what I found is that their response, their performance on the task does correlate with some of the scales associated with interception. So it does seem to be tapping into at least some aspects of interception, or what we think of as interception. Um, but in a less direct way in terms of asking you, how much do you attend to whatever? Oh, it sort of does, I suppose. But anyway, it's a different measure to do it, and um, and so I've I've been I've yeah so I've I've tried I've tried this and I've got um, some pilot data from around twenty pregnant women and some postnatal women and some neither women, um, and um, I'm just you know there's some potentially interesting findings because I'm looking at things like I don't know weight gain during pregnancy and and we're finding some some potentially quite interesting relationships between the performance on the task which need further exploration because obviously it's not obviously my plan would be to get them in the lab it's not so controlled but um they uh, they potentially point to something that could be interesting so that that's trying to make something in the current situation to work and it's been more successful than i i thought as I say, only quite a small sample, but it's been more, it's been more, um, I've definitely got some interesting pilot data, which it deserves further exploration in there. So I'm, uh, yeah, I find that interesting, but, um, yeah, it's quite tricky. Um, it's quite tricky at the moment. That also sounds like the kind of thing that you could do with people with eating disorder. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, the, the, and probably a little bit more accepted because it's kind of, it sounds a bit like a mindfulness thing. And there's plenty of studies which have done mindfulness in, in, um, in eating disorders. Um, so, um, yeah, there's definitely something that we could probably do with that kind of population, but it's only my first time of toying with it. Um, uh, toying with the, the the paradigm and um yeah so we might plan um uh, some more studies i think maybe a student project potentially could be next year just looking looking at just further seeing whether this works and it would probably have to be online as well so we're not really sure given the current situation where we're going to be and when we're going to be allowed to do face-to-face -face test testing Oh, uh, so uh, yeah. Can we, so you're not allowed to do any face-to-face -face no, testing. Not at the there? moment. I'm not even at the moment. I can't even go into the department. So um, yeah, and there's um, we don't even have a timeline for when when we'll be doing face-to-face -face testing. Um, so we don't know when that's going to happen. And also, even when we do, I guess the problem is if I want to be testing patients, they might be protected even still, right? Especially if you think about eating disorder patients, which might be in a vulnerable category because they might be physically vulnerable anyway. So testing these people might be quite quite a long way in the future directly. Um, and even pregnant women. So a lot of the research might be that it might not be harmful, but the, the advice is be, be cautious. So, um, yeah, so uh, unfortunately, 
that's that's a, a big barrier at the moment. So just trying to think of ways to try and get around that. And um, I don't want to just do loads of questionnaire type studies. That's not really that's not really what I don't mind dabbling in it, but in a, as a means to an end. But that's not really my research focus. I want to do experiments. So um, I'm trying I'm trying to explore avenues. But yeah, so you're allowed in. You're allowed in the the office. I can see. Yeah. Yes, this is not my private house. Uh, my ceilings aren't quite that high in my flat. Um, yeah, we've, and we'll see for how much longer. Seems like so. In Germany, it was beginning of April was the peak, mm -hmm. and since then it's gone really far down. I think they've been so here. I think the first thing was I mean, so we're at a hospital, which changes things slightly. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, but, um, I think we've been scanning since so fMRI since May or so. Okay. I mean, not me, but like people in the Institute. Um, so yeah, it, it is like we're doing behavioral testing and everything. It's, it's more or less back to normal. Here. Okay. But then again, the numbers are creeping up again. So we'll see where we'll be in, in a month or two. Yeah. So, uh, it's, yeah, so we, we were beginning, we were opening up, but then the numbers are creeping up. So um, things are, are put on freeze. And I mean, there's still plans for the university to open in, uh, for the, the autumn term. But whether, I, I just, as I say, there's no plans for face-to-face -face testing yet. So I don't know when anything will be happening. But all teaching next year will be online. Well, most all lectures will be online. I might have, there might be some student presentations, um, but you, you, like a group of thirty in like a, a massive lecture hall rather than um, so so ways to get around it that way. But yeah, but yeah. So all student projects are all planned to be online um, at the moment. Uh, my main research is trying to well writing up papers which have piled up since I've been on maternity leave um you know so obviously I've got a lot of catching up to do anyway um and online testing when we can and uh, systematic reviews that kind of thing so. yeah everyone's going to be doing their reviews yeah now. yeah absolutely <laughs> actually reading literature of other people yeah that's good uh, sorry I have this fly that's here it's really annoying okay. um yeah I mean in some sense that it seems to me almost like if you it seems to me most academics do have a lot of projects that they sh kind of should be writing up right now or should have done a while ago so i i feel like people might just kind of get rid of their back backlog yeah uh, hopefully yeah at least temporarily until then in a few years a new one builds up but yeah 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 absolutely so i'm hoping that yeah making use of the time to write up these papers and to um and and hopefully to write some grants so you know but yeah, yeah of course. that's the plan. So hopefully it won't. So how does, or in general, I guess maybe like since, I guess since we like saw each other the last time, I think uh, you've, well, you moved to York, right? Yeah. Um, we saw each other in Stockholm the last time. Um, but how has it been as a lecturer? Well. Uh, how's that been? Yeah. Starting your own lab and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been good. So I like the autonomy. It's nice to have that, um, to be able to direct. I mean, Henwick was incredibly uh, good at letting you kind of direct your own research anyway, but it was quite nice to have, to, 
for it to be me and not just Henrik's postdoc, you know. So, um, so that that that's quite nice. Um, obviously, a lot of work trying to build your lab up, and also just the because I, I'm a lot busier with other stuff. I have to teach. I have to do administration for the departments. So um, I'm not doing as much of the face to face testing. So having to delegate that has been quite. You know, it's it's learning how to do that, which is uh, which is good. I mean, it's helpful. I've had um, two fantastic PhD students. Uh, one of them finished in April, and he was amazing, and uh, definitely could trust him to do to do everything perfectly in the lab. Well, perfectly, really well in the lab, <laughs> and like he's he's uh, he was amazing and did a really good job. And my current PhD student, she's also. Um, fantastic so I've been really lucky with these brilliant PhD students um, which has helped Um, so that's all been really good and I really enjoy mentoring I mean I still need mentoring myself you know but I I enjoy mentoring other people because I think I've learned quite a lot about how to play the game of academia Um, many of the lessons I've learned too late for myself but I'm hoping to help uh, bring on uh, new researchers the next generation of researchers so i'm hoping i really enjoy that aspect and there's nothing it's really nice when you meet enthusiastic students who are really intelligent and really you know i find that really inspiring and i really um i really enjoy that element of things so i really like that um obviously i'm driven by research so you know the other tasks feel like they might get in the way sometimes but they're part of my job. It's nice to have a permanent position, I suppose. And so you can actually, you know, because um, when you move institutions, it's there's always this this backlog of settling in somewhere and, and building up your research again. So it's kind of nice to, you know, I've had that. Obviously, then I decided to have two kids, which sort of does the same, you know, gives you a little gaps in your CV anyway. But um, but it's nice to be able to to know that I'm not, not be searching for the next job which is kind of which which is kind of good um so and I'm lucky where I am because I think that I my teaching load isn't isn't very high uh, which is good um and you know I, I teach a module on um on my own subject area which which is which is good it's just that I find I I I actually find I get a bit stressed about that because I I want people to enjoy it because it's my it's my baby right and I have to tell them about my my research it's like please please love the research <laughs> please love this the is Sarah. great right yeah, this is great it yeah. is great you've got to find it you're great. having fun yeah and and it's generally gone very well but um but yeah I do get that anxiety of like you know this is important to me so I'm, I'm hoping that you enjoy it um but yeah so um yeah it's been good it's been yeah it's it's been good some obviously you kind of miss um postdoc days where and phd where you don't have to do these extra tasks but then it's nice to be part of a community at york where um it's supportive so when i'm doing this administration it's often helping my colleagues or you know that kind of thing and helping um the department as a whole, which is which is nice, and I think that that at York there, there's definitely that feeling of this camaraderie in the department. There's a lot less politics than perhaps there might be in other places, and it's a really nice um, 
it's a really nice team and we get on really well and so, so you're you feel less well personally I feel I don't mind doing some of the tasks so much because it's it's to contribute to 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 the group and you know if I don't do it then one of my friends is going to have to do it so you know it's it, it makes you want to to take part in these aspects if that makes sense but yeah it's been it's been good it's I just don't like the title lecturer because then um, if you're outside of the UK and even in, if you're inside of the UK and you, you don't know much, you know, you don't know about the the role of an academic, then people just think you teach. And it's like, well, no, I don't just teach. It's, uh, it's the research element. So that, that's the only, the only, the type, the, the, the title yeah. is a bit annoying. I guess that's a matter of time, right? Yeah. So a lot of institutions in the UK are changing to that as, assistant professor, associate professor kind of titles. But well, I mean, also in terms of you. Oh yeah. At some well, point, when I not being a lecturer. Oh anymore. yeah. Well, yeah. But then you're a, it's senior lecturer, and then it's reader or professor. So yeah, reader sounds even weirder. It is, isn't it? Well, it's like, you, oh, just, you, you read. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I have to wait until I'm a professor. So I don't know whether. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but um, not every academic becomes. A professor so we will see yeah. um but yeah but is so one thing i always wondered with teaching it always i mean i've obviously never done any but it always seemed to me that it would be better to do a um an optional or elective module yeah is a, rather than one where like everyone has to do it because like developmental psychology is part of the curriculum uh, is is I would I would imagine that yours would be optional, yes, right? Yes. Yes. So yeah. so that yeah. So I've done I've taught both, uh, and I think that I mean there was definitely certainly some of the uh, the people in our um, department who teach these core modules do it in a way where we they really engage students. But yeah. So but to do my my module then people have chosen to do it and and normally it's I've, I've got lots of students it's quite a popular module because it's sort of uh, linking a bit to clinical stuff which which i think a lot of so what is the what exactly it's is called it body what's the title? it's called body representation so i do um i talk about body illusions so i have i have lectures on that and then i have um we look at different aspects so i look at um, eating disorders um, I look at the body in pain I look at kind of um, uh, action awareness so and different stroke conditions where like anosognosia for hemiplegia I don't know if you've heard of that one where people are um, disabled following stroke yes. and unaware of their disability so right yeah. yeah so that kind of thing so I try to make it nice and clinical related which is um, obviously it meets my interest but also a lot of the students like that kind of thing too so yeah yeah i was about to say that that those are the kind of like yeah. oliver sacks kind of things oh. that are just very easy to understand and very counterintuitive or confusing yeah um, so like kind of very interesting in that way absolutely kind of yes what was the, what was the what's it called again anosognosia for hemiplegia so hemiplegia is when you can't see half your vision. no no that's hemiopia but uh, hemiplegia is um paralysis on one side of the body so it's someone typically right hemisphere stroke they are um, paralyzed uh down the left side of their body but they are unaware of their paralysis so um they might just deny that they're paralyzed so i've worked with i've i've, I've got papers um where i published tested these patients before and um you know i've had people saying yeah i can ride a bike still and i'm like oh when i spoke to him i was a bit like um i asked him why he was in hospital and he said oh because my wife isn't well 
And it's like, okay, actually, it's because you're disabled. And he didn't recognize that element that he was disabled. But you can also... Was his wife actually in hospital? No, no, no. Was his, that also completely made That, that okay. wasn't true. Yeah, exactly. But uh, the, but then you also get patients who... There's, it's a complicated condition with many different presentations. But you get, also get patients who might admit that they have a disability, but then try and get out of bed, try and do stuff um, as if they don't have a disability. And then, you know, so there's lots of... It's it's often a quite short term following um, a severe um, right hemisphere stroke, but um, some people can have it for a long long duration. And obviously, it can be inhibitory for um, uh, rehabilitation. If you don't think you're if you don't think you're ill, why would you take part in the physio or, or whatever? So um, and also, it, you can learn a little bit about self awareness. If people aren't, you know, after with such clear evidence that they, you know, they're paralysed on one side of their body, such clear evidence that they can't move it, and they're denying it or not aware of it, then I think that's really interesting learning about. And that's why I like these kind of conditions. It fascinated me when I was a student. It's like I can't imagine being that person and, and just. Yeah. What is the subjective experience like of 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 being unaware of your disability? So I think yeah, it's a really fascinating condition, and um, yeah, that 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 lecture particularly is also very popular. Yeah. So can you try rubber hand illusion with that, or like does paralysis mean they can't move, or they also can't feel anything? Um. So a lot of the patients can't feel anything, but some can, and they have done. Um, so um, there's a researcher at UCL called Katerina Fetipunu, and she's done um, and she worked, I think, together with Paul Jenkinson. I collaborate with both of them. They're lovely and brilliant researchers, and they've done some sort of rubber hand style um, experiments with these patients. And um, what they find, if I remember rightly, is that that just placing a hand in front of them, often they just think it's their hand, right? So they readily accept it's their okay. hand. So there's some, but there's, yeah, so you can definitely do some work with those. But they're quite rare and difficult to work with patients. So because as I said, it's often after quite a severe stroke. I mean, I, I as part of my PhD, I, I did work with neglect patients. So these are people who are, have a lack of awareness of one side of space so um and again they they were sort of similar right hemisphere um uh, brain damage similar to the anosognosia except anosognosia is more rare um but they um they're often really sick so i remember sort of like learning about patient going in to see him and he had passed away that kind of thing so you're talking about people testing uh, at the bedside often um but it was when I was looking for, for neglect patients, that I happened to just come across a file of, of a guy and I looked at his medical notes and I was like, oh, anosognosia. And so then we did some experiments with him and it was really fascinating. But yeah, they're, they're difficult to come across and, and test, but yeah, they're really fascinating condition. And, and these, some sort of work has been done with those with kind of rubber hands. But yeah, so that's, that's a, yeah, yeah, it's a popular module, a popular module, a popular lecture. So that and the eating disorders, they love, they're interesting. People love eating disorders. People love eating disorders. They're fascinated by eating disorders. Because it's, uh, I guess a lot of our students know someone who has had an eating disorder or something like that. So there's that personal connection. So I think there's that that interest, um, which is, you know, but the the research is hard to do on on all these populations because 
Yeah. yeah. So. I'm curious about one thing you said earlier when you said you still need mentoring. Mm. So I'm curious, how does that happen if it's n- so? You know, for people like me, PhD students, postdocs, there's a. It's very. I should say it's built into the system that you have mentoring, right? Yeah. Um, how how do you go about that if you don't? You know, if officially in that sense you don't have someone whose lab you're working in and who looks over your shoulders yeah. as part of their job in that sense. Yeah. So uh, I think the departments are getting uh, better at this. Um, and our department is really good. I mean, I don't have, I did, when I started my lectureship, actually, I got, um, I got given two mentors. I got a teaching mentor and, um, a, a research mentor and, um, they were both fantastic. Actually, they're both great. Um, and so they're people that I meant to go to and speak to about advice for these so, things. So is, the, sorry, is that normal? I'd never heard of uh, this. Well, of... I don't know. I think it's probably, as I said, I think it's a developing thing. So hopefully it's going to be more normal. There's also things like the early career. Um, so we have, what do we, um, ECR, the early career research forum, I think that we have. It's more mostly for postdocs, but um, new sort of lecturers are also in- included in in this. Um, so they put on events and different sort of training and stuff for you know the facilities and and social networks for this for these members which is which is good um but yeah uh, otherwise you're just kind of having a good um having a good relationship with just your um your your work colleagues is really useful so as i said there's a really good atmosphere at york it's really nice they everyone's keen to help each other so there's initiatives to help um so we have obviously more experienced professors and stuff who have worked on um you know done loads of grants and also been on boards for grants um for grant funding bodies and so there are people that you can go to to talk to about um uh, the best options and 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 to can help guide you through the process so um yeah so it might not be it depend i guess it really would depend rather than for a phd student who presumably should always have their phd supervisor and probably a supervisory team so you might have two supervisors right perhaps and and actually at york we have something called a thesis advisory panel so you get other uh, faculty members come in and uh, your phd students regularly Uh, present to them and so there's more so there's more people outside your supervision team there's a like there's more people that you can turn to which is really useful and get feedback from slightly different areas which is which is again really good so it i think it's really dependent yeah on on maybe where you work but um um, Mm -hmm. and even where i think it's really good at york but um it's it's getting more um formalized so they're sort of you know it was more informal and now they're sort of writing these roles into people's sort of workloads so you you know one of the problems that I had when you're trying to get feedback from grants is like well I don't want to they're obviously really busy I don't want to bother them but now it's part of their job description that they have to help you out with your grant proposal so I'm hoping that that you know that should be good for the future and I think it's a, a great a great system um but I think even professors, you know, you need, you can take advice, you can learn from other researchers. Um, and I think, you, and recognizing that is hopefully a good thing. Um, so I'm still learning, I'm learning new methods all the time. And, you know, things like that, um, 
working with in R to get beautiful graphs, whereas, you know, I probably spent all my training building them painstakingly in Excel. And, you know, so it's sort of, you can perhaps learn from people who are uh, younger than you, can help you sort of, um, or at least academically younger than you, uh, can help you uh, uh, engage in these kind of new technology and stuff. So there's there's definitely learning needs to continue throughout your career. Um, and, yeah, mentoring, you know, I don't have all the answers and um not all of not them. all of them lots of them no not really but right. yeah so i think it's really important but um it, i i'm really fortunate to work at a very good department which which helps with that um uh, but i'm hoping it's generally across academia i think that there's more uh, is being put in place to provide to provide that kind of mentorship throughout your career and not just when you're a student so it sounds really cool. I mean, um, yeah, I, I just, uh, um, I mean, it would make sense that you would have this kind of, um, especially like in your case, when you come new to the department, right? It's not like you know everyone and everything there. Absolutely. I think in that kind of sense, it's probably also good to just have someone who yeah. helps you out yeah. in a kind of formal way. Yeah, exactly. Someone that you feel like you can just go knock on their door and like, can you get, can we go for a coffee? So, you know, um, which, and my two mentors are, are very good friends now. So um, one of them's left York, but we're still, we still work together and she's a really good friend. And the other one is a professor in the department. And he's, he's so lovely. So, um, you know, they're, they're, they're really good. So, yeah, that's how that works. But, cool. yeah. Uh, do we still have like 10, 15 yeah. minutes or? Yeah. Uh, I was curious. One, uh, so how do you decide what to kind of learn yourself, and what maybe your students would learn? So let's say something like making nice figures in R. Um, I mean, obviously you can do more than just figures in R, but do you know what I'm trying to get at? Like sometimes it's like, is it really worth the time for you to learn all this stuff? if someone in the lab can already do it, for example? Yeah, or, yeah. Uh, um, or do you think you should kind of more or less be able to do most of those things that you ask your PhD students to be able to do? Or Yeah, so right now um, I would like to do, I, I'm, you know, uh, trying to be able to do everything that I ask my PhD students to do. We might learn at the same time. So obviously I know you can do more in R. And um, and it yeah. was revolution and I and I can do more in R. And it was revolutionary to be like I try uh, like doing power analyses, right? And I'm I'm not a big fan of power analyses because of estimated effect sizes are often just plucked out of air. But anyway, so I but I, I so yeah. I hadn't I, and I'd I'd using some different software for that, which I always found a bit like clumsy and not very great. And I was like, oh, I'll just look up how to do it in R and I'll learn how to do that. And it took me about 10 minutes to learn how to do that. And I was like, this is great. This is so much easier. Why didn't I do it like this to start with? So, um, uh, yeah, so absolutely. Uh, but the, and the other thing um, is I've been doing a bit of structural equation modeling. So I've said that I've dabbled a bit in this kind of questionnaire stuff, but obviously we want to do really robust analysis um and doing learning how to do that in R. so one of my phd students we we did it in a different software but we couldn't do all the analysis we wanted to so she's um learning it in r and i'm trying to learn it in r at the same time so it's uh, it might not all i might not be able to 
tell her what to do but I'm hoping that and if she has struggles I've I'm kind of I can help with the guidance through that rather than just purely delegating perhaps having a post but even having a postdoc like if you had a postdoc that's really good at a particular type of analysis and you didn't really have a clue how to do it yourself when they leave what are you going to do then so uh, maybe uh, you know in many years time I'll be too busy and I just cannot you just cannot learn how to do everything but at the moment I'm at a point where I'm trying to be able to if I ask something or we decide with a student that we should incorporate some sort of analysis or we should use a different program for something then I try to be able to do it myself so I can check not that I don't trust them but you know you can if they have problems or something I can check and I can go through it myself and 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 make sure that it's correct um uh, so yes and also you know I don't want to ask asking them to do something which is really difficult and you know, it's good. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason of the question was also, I guess you can, how should we say, in some, I mean, of course, it's always nice to check each other's stuff and that kind of stuff. But I also wonder, it's, you know, there is also a benefit to having complementary skills, right? Yeah. Where your PhD student really adds something that, um, for whatever reason, you couldn't or can't do right now. Oh, yeah. Um, so then there's a, you know, just seeing it, there's a bit of a, like, should we really, like, be able to, like, should this do you want to have like perfect overlap between two people or do you? I don't think, yeah, know. but the, the, the complementaries, yeah, I mean, they'll, they'll probably end up being better at it than me for a start because they might hopefully have more time to engage and learn of these things. But also the complementary skills might or come from different ways like perspectives in um, where they're coming from for designing experiments and and that's certainly been the case with my with my PhD students, like um, with one of them, I really, uh, my, my first PhD student, I really watched that grow over time, the way he, I think it came with confidence as well, where he sort of um, uh, grew in his ability to sort of like, oh, make suggestions and, and come with his own ideas. And that was really lovely to see. And my other student was very, um, came with her own ideas from the beginning. And that was really interesting because it's pushed me in directions that I wouldn't necessarily go. And that's, um, and so we, we get that anyway. And yeah, I think definitely with uh, with some of the analysis that probably some of my students are, I, I could do it, but I think that they're probably better at it than me. So, um, you know, but um, yeah, I, I and I guess... I like I like well, certainly with collaborators. Like I, I like to work with other academics a lot in science. I like to collaborate. I think that adds value. I just like to be able to talk my ideas with someone, and it's nice to um, get perspectives from other people. And their complementary skills uh, are really good. So I've worked when we did all this sort of rubber hand illusion and monkey hand illusion with kids. I worked with a developmental psychologist, so that was really useful. Um, and yeah, so we've, it's, it's, it's nice that there, I really like to have complementary skills, but I guess with students, you just, you don't, I don't want to, I want to be able to support them. And so I feel like I'd feel bad to sort of oh learn this and I'm not going to, not going to be there to offer any sort of yeah, support yeah. through their learning process. So, um, yeah, maybe postdocs, it might be slightly different, but, um, but definitely with students, I, I like I, I don't like to ask them to do things that either I 
either I couldn't do or I wouldn't be prepared to learn alongside them to be able to support them through it. Because if they get stuck, then they should be able to turn to me. Even if I'm also stuck, that might make them feel better, right? So yeah, I'm also stuck. Let's find someone else to ask. But, you know, it's sort of yeah, at least exactly. we do it together and it doesn't make them feel that, yeah, that they're lost on their own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, then maybe as a kind of final question. So let's say someone has been listening to this and thinking, I'd really like to work as a master's student, PhD student, first talk with you. What are the, what kind of people are you looking for or if you are looking for people? And if so, how can they kind of, you know, for PhDs, are there, I'm assuming there are programs in York that they can apply for? Yeah, or? so we have, um, so we have these uh, sort of departmental studentships that come, that come about, um, which, um, they you normally like to start thinking about it at the beginning of the autumn and the applications are in January and they do sort of interviews in February um so we tend to we have some of those every year um but uh, there are also other um other avenues um to possibly apply for funding because obviously all these things are really competitive so um but uh yeah, so there are other avenues. So I guess if people are interested, they should email. They should email me. But kind of people that I'm, I mean, I have, I have one PhD student who's in her final year, and I have another PhD. Well, a PhD. She's just got some ESR, ESRC funding, so she's doing a master's year and then starting, um, and then starting with me the year after. But um, I, I, what I'm looking for is are people who are smart and have interests in that are similar to mine so um um i guess quite often i get emails with people who just want to do eating disorder research um with patients and stuff whereas i guess i'm probably looking for people who are more sort of broadly interested in uh body representations and how that can um then be applied because as I think, as, as I've said before, the uh, likelihood within a PhD to definitely, you know, once you've applied for NHS ethics and engaged um, with clinicians, you, the likelihood of doing a whole PhD on eating disorders with eating disorder patients is probably quite slim. Um, but I'm just bright, interested students. So I'm kind of, um, yeah, I've I've had some great PhD students so far, so I'm hoping that that will, that will long continue. Um but yeah, always, always happy to work with uh, people who are interested. And they've got, always got to read your papers. I'm a sucker for someone who's like, oh, I read your paper on this and I found it really interesting. Oh, you've read my paper. <laughs> Lovely. I'm a sucker. It gets me every time. I'm like, oh, okay. I've taken on extra pe- um, undergraduate students more than my quota this year because people have gone on. I shouldn't say this. What if more people do it? Uh, because people have gone on and read my papers and got in touch. And like, Maybe, oh, you should, yeah. Okay. Yeah, now they just they also don't have to. They just say it. They'll know that you'll just be so happy. Then. Well, yeah, but then maybe I'll test them on it. If too many people no, do no, this. You and you're like, okay, oh, okay. so what did you think of this thing? And then like, we'll get them in for a chat know. in the lab and then see if they've really read it. But um, so uh, yeah, yeah. But I think it's like most academics. Like if you're if you're if people people have read your research and I really understand what you're instead of just the oh eating disorder research that's what she does but actually read your papers and understand what research you do and are interested in that then I think that most people uh, most academics uh, um, can be swayed by that enthusiasm because this is because that's what I love that's what I'm interested in so I meet someone who is 
interested in it too, then, you know, I'll waffle on for them for hours about it and, and enjoy that. And, you know, that, that's why, yeah. So that's the key for any PhD as advice for anyone applying for a PhD, look up your supervisors and read their papers and let them know you've read their papers. And then that's, uh, then you're halfway there really. So obviously you've still got to get the funding, but you know, but then again, you'll have enormous grants. <laughs> so, ah, uh, well, I hope that that will be easy. I hope that you are predicting the future well, but um, <laughs> uh, we will see. So, fingers crossed. But yeah. Okay, cool. I think I've been taking up enough of your time now. That's all right. It's been it's been uh, nice. I hope. Uh, uh, I hope. Uh, 